and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk On Topic, a show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics of all kinds. I'm one of your hosts, Kitty. And I'm Chris. Today we're talking about notable designers and publisher. What makes them stand out? Do we have a favorite designer or publisher? If so, why? Oh, and as a bonus, we might even talk a little bit about notable artists. But first, a thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison and the SGC, and welcome to our newest patron, Sahara Wentworth. And a huge thank you to everyone else as well. For our regular listeners, which I'm assuming is practically everybody, and welcome to the person who's not a regular listener, we are missing a Fletcher. We are missing a Fletcher. It's mostly, um, I'm, I'm going to take the blame on this one, because he told me he wasn't going to be back until tomorrow, and I misjudged how many episodes we would have to record, and then I said, oh, all right, well, I can talk to Kitty for a little while. We'll see how this works. Yeah. We've done this before, a Just Us episode. One other time. Bonus points to anyone who can name it, because I can't. I don't, I don't remember what I we were can. talking about. But I it remember was, we did it. Yeah. It went a lot like this, where we're like, wait a minute, there's not someone for us to talk to in front of and stuff. All right, we can do this. <laughs> we're totally on the rails still. We got it. <laughs> so Kitty and I actually played a game today in person. I know. It's so rare. And it wasn't Keyforge. And it wasn't Keyforge. It was Betrayal Legacy, Chapter 6. Yeah. We're making progress. So, yeah, we um we rarely see each other in person. I think this is the first time we saw each other in person since Gen Con. Yeah. So. To be we, fair, I've been out of town for most of that time. So. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to be out of town most of non-working time over the next six weeks or so. So, yeah, we yeah, have a scheduled... We had to- Schedule date six weeks date. from now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Today I'm like, all right, well, let's do lunch. We can do this. So yeah. But yeah, so Kitty lives about an hour south of me, and we both have young kids, so it makes it challenging to get together and play games. But we brought Zachary over and he slept for us, and player three was mostly occupied while we played our game. It's true. Player three slept for the whole time we didn't play a game and then woke up just in time to be like, oh, hey, I see you finished setup. Time to rampage. But he's getting better at actually entertaining himself. So he found a styrofoam cooler to use as a fort or a sled. In any case, it was safe. To destroy, I think, is what he was really trying to do. Yeah. And he succeeded. (laughs) It was a very successful job. So. Um, yes, today we're going to talk about designers and publishers and maybe artists, but maybe not. And I didn't, this is going to be a little bit more freeform. So this is actually came in from a question on Facebook. Um, Bob Moyer, is that, that seems right, right? Yep. That's how I'd say it. (laughs) Which I don't think we responded to Bob, but Bob, we got your message. We, if you if you send us messages, we do read them. We just normally read them not in real time. So it's like responding to a text message a day and a half later and being like, oh, yeah. So we I tend not to respond at all. But we do hear it. And so Bob's question was, actually, Kitty, you read this because there's words in here I don't want to say. Are there board game auteurs? Ooh, Is like there that. a the Spielberg word. or a Trufat? Trufat? Sure. Trufat? Sure. I don't know. <laughs> of board games, a visionary whose game designs are so reflective and uniquely them that you can tell who the designer was without looking at the box 
or designers who are so influential that other designers reflect not only their mechanics, but the feel and the heart of their games. Does Rainer... Reiner. Reiner. Reiner Knizia. See, now you need to come in and do this <laughs> half. Although I do know, does Matt Leacock, Jamie Stegmeyer, Eric Lang, is there a time we think of games as not only unique collections of mechanics, but unique visions? So this question kind of caught me to a point where I'm like, huh, I've never really thought of this. You know, Bob mentions a few designers that I think we've all heard of. And when you look at these designers and you start looking at the games they've designed, is there a common thread? Sure, there might be common themes, or not necessary themes, but mechanisms inside of the games for each designer. But does that define them? Did they create the mechanism or are they just kind of refining it? Are they using the same thing over and over? Is a Steffenfeld game a Steffenfeld game? Because you know it's going to be a heavy Euro game. And if it's a heavy Euro game, you can say, oh, this feels like a Steffenfeld game, even if it wasn't. But half the time, you might be right. So I'm just kind of, I, I just wanted to talk this one out because I think this is a great question. And I'm not sure. So what do you think? So when I heard this question, the designer that immediately jumped to mind was Ryan Lockett. Yes. His games all have, I mean, he does the art as well. So it's the art, it's the gameplay, it all feels very cohesive. They all feel like they fall within the same world. You can, I can see it from across the room and know that's a Ryan Lockett game. And that goes to the art of it as well. Because Ryan Lockett, if you don't know who Ryan Lockett is... um, Designer of Above and Below, Near and Far. Ancient um, Worlds. Uh, He did a Target exclusive for a bit that I don't know that many people picked up. What was his very first one? Um, Ancient Worlds, it might have been one of his earlier ones. He did um, Empires of the Void and Empires of the Void 2, which is a sci-fi one. Um, I'm pretty sure he did those. Just recently kickstarted. Oof. I can't remember. Yeah, it was another storybook one, though. Yeah. Like. All the whole, basically inside of that near and far above and below universe. Universe, yes. So what's unique about him is not only does he design his own games, he also does all the art for his own games, and he publishes his own games under Red Red Raven Games. Does this make him iconic? Or is this just a designer that... It has a collection of games that you can be like, oh, this these games are all Ryan Lockett's. I know his art, I know his style, and I know that I'm going to like his games. And each time he makes a new game, it is typically better than the one before it. He builds on and he learns from the earlier ones. And as he makes more and more games, they get better and better. Does that qualify as an orator? I think that's the term Bob Auteur. Auteur? I think. Um, I'm going to say... What did Spencer define it for me as? Uh, an artist of of some note or something like that. Sleeping I, Gods not, is the one we were missing. Yes, Sleeping God, which is recently yeah. a spiritual successor to Above and Below and Near and Far. It's another storybook game. Um, do you think, like, is he a visionary? Are other people emulating him? Or is he just emulating himself so you recognize his game, his art, his name whenever you see it? Because he just does very a lot of the same thing. I mean... And I don't mean that derogatory. I'm, like, I'm just saying there's definitely a pattern in his games. 
there is a pattern in his games, but I do think they're all good games. And I think they're all games I want to play. Yes. I, and I think that's kind of where the line is. It's not just like, oh, he has this really unique style. He has this really, you know, typical art that you recognize. It's that I see that art and I immediately associate it with him and think, I want to play that game. I don't have to know much more beyond that game than it is from this designer of this series of games that I really like to know that I want to play it. So if we're, you know, talking about if like relating this to Spielberg, I don't need to know anything about the movie beyond it's a Steven Spielberg movie to want to go see it. To me, that's kind of a, a yardstick I can use to measure like, oh, it's not just I can tell that this is, you know, this person. It's I tell that this is this person and it means something good. Or it means something good to you. Because, you know, to go Spielberg, I can say I really like J.J. Abrams movies. Pretty much yes. anything he touches, I like. I know that there are people out there that J.J. Abrams is a hack and everyone hates everything he does. So I'm certain that there are people out there that look at a Ryan Lockett game and be like, oh, it's that art style, which I don't like and I don't like his games and I know I'm not going to like that particular thing. So it can go either way, but it is distinctive. It is that distinctive thing where I can be like, yes, I'm going to try this out. So I will ask you, did you back Sleeping Guts? I did not, but it was not because I wasn't interested, but because of budgetary constraints in my <laughs> game collection, both monetary and space. And See, I'm still I playing Near and Far. Yes. And, well, and that's the other thing, too, because Near and Far... We got that, and because we really liked Above and Below, but Above and yes. Below lacked a conclusion to the little story blurbs that you would get while playing the game. Near and Far had conclusions and had full stories and lots of character arcs and lines and stuff that I was super interested in playing through. The problem with it was you have to play it through, and you, it's not a co-op game, it's a competitive game, so you have to play it through with people. And that can sometimes be difficult, especially when you can play that game, like, I think, five or six times through the campaign, taking different story paths every time, and still see new content. So it ended up being, it was everything I was hoping for, but too much, and I couldn't fully get invested in it. Now, apparently, Sleeping Gods, I believe Sleeping Gods is a, is a co-op that you can run through solo, if I recall correctly. But I still didn't get it, because... The last one. Now, we're getting a little off and probably talking a little more Ryan Lockett. But this type of thing happens for any game. It is game. a one to four. Is it one to four? Yeah. So one to four, I'm like, all right, so this is a solo game. This is a game I could play through the story. It's supposed to have more story than his previous ones. It's the expands the world. Like everything about this, I really, really want. And yet I didn't get it. But I also know that Ryan Lockett's games are going to be in retail. So if I do want to get this, I can get it in retail. Yeah. I don't have to get it. Um, in Kickstarter, and the Kickstarter edition just has some extra metal coins, which I love, but I have lots of metal coins, so I probably don't need any more. I think I even have metal coins from near and far that I could probably directly use for these. So, is he an icon? Is he someone... I would say yes. I would say Ryan Lockett is probably one of those designers that you can say this is a Ryan Lockett game, and like you said, people will, will either say yes, I'm interested in that, or no, I'm not, regardless of what the game is specifically. So what is what did this bring up for you? What were your initial thoughts on this? <sighs> See, Bob named a few that started me thinking. So Reiner Knizia. 
I do not think Reiner Knizia fits this model at all. In any way, shape, or form, I do not think that he is an iconic game designer. He is a game designer that has dozens, if not hundreds, of games, but none of them are like have a distinctive feel that are like, oh, this is a Reiner Knizia game. And most of his games are unsuccessful. Um, he has tons and tons of published ones, but they're games that you would have never heard of. Um, I've bought... I. Uh, what is it? Miskatonic University was the most recent one I got that is kind of a little, it's a card game where you're trying to solve the, you know, Cthulhu mystery before the great ones take over. It's Ryan Lockett. It has Ryan Lockett's name on the game. It didn't stop me certainly from getting it seeing as, or not Ryan Lockett, um, Reiner Knizia. <laughs> it, it certainly didn't stop me from buying it because I saw his name. And it might have helped being like, oh, this is Reiner Knizia. I've heard this name, even if I couldn't name like three of his games. But I, when I was playing it, I'm like, oh, this isn't anything special. There's nothing amazing here. And I believe at the time, I'm like, you know, something I should know his name. So I looked it up and he just has dozens and dozens of games, most of which I have not heard of. Um, I'm assuming you're Googling right now and seeing his most successful ones. Designer of over 600 published games. Yes. So when I when I think of Reiner Knizia, I think of someone who is a professional designer who's had several hits. And again, I would I struggle right now. I cannot think of a game that he's designed, like one of his hit games, but I know they're out there and I know as soon as you say one, I will be like, oh yeah, that. Samurai? No. The Lord of the Rings? Tigris and Euphrates? Tigris and Euphrates, that's a big one. Um, I've never played it, but it's a typical trading in the Mediterranean Euro game that Ra? Eh. Medici? No. See, this is this is why I say I don't think Reiner Kinesia yeah. fits into this category. I think he fits into I the shotgun. I would say he does not category. fit in because until this moment I had never heard of him. I, not this moment, but until yeah. we started this question, yeah. Yep. And I will say many, many people are listening right now like, but he does some of my favorite games or this game or that game. And I don't disagree that he's done great games. When you do 600 games, you're going to have some great games in there. He is a professional designer and that's fantastic. It doesn't mean that every one of his games is amazing. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are mimicking the stuff he's doing. Now, the fact that he's doing so many, though, does mean he gets to explore a lot of different mechanisms that many other designers don't necessarily explore. Um, Steffenfeld, and I want to say, I, I think that this is the same designer, um, but like Steffenfeld games, they tend to have a same feel to them because he tends to reuse the same mechanics or the same mechanisms, mechanics, mechanism, we're going to use that interchangeably. Um, just listen to the one that you find is <laughs> most uh, not offensive to you. Um, but I want to say, is Feast for Odin a Steffenfeld game? And I'm going to check this in real time. And normally I don't do this because, you know, trying to check. No, that's an Uwe, Uwe Rosenberg, which is another person that should be on here. Um so, but Steffenfield Games, I I wish I could tell you a bunch of them. Um, I know that they are not my kind of game. I know that when I see, so, oh, this is a Steffenfeld, I'm not like, oh my God, I'm going to run out and grab it. Now, I do think that... Um, I want to like pre-apologize for um, all of the typing noises you're going to hear in the background of this episode, because <laughs> I can't not... Look at these. So yeah, I was right. Castles of Burgundy is the Steffenfeld that 
immediately popped into my mind, but I then questioned myself because I'm not great at this still. <laughs> yeah. Well, and those are the types of games. Um, like Castles of Burgundy is an amazing game. You know, whether or not I can wrap my head around it or not, it it's not that complicated. It's just there's a lot of little fiddly rules there. But that's I think that's what Steffenfeld is known for is the the details, like mm-hmm. the amount of paths to victory, like how many different uh like there's just so many things to think about in Castles of Burgundy. Yeah, it's a very classic point salad kind of euro game feel that you're going to get this like non-player interaction, but you can affect what other people do kind of games. Yeah, so if I'm going down the list here um from Stephen Field, notable games include and this is a summary I believe this is a summary by him. Um, and it's not just every game that's listed on BGG. But um, if we start at the beginning, Notre Dame, which is a, a heavy Euro. Um, I'm just going to go the ones that I've heard of in Castles of Burgundy, Trojan, uh, Castle of Burgundy, the card game, um, Castle of Burgundy, the dice game, Merlin, Forum Trojanum. Now, Forum Trojanum, I have actually played, and I did enjoy that game. But it's still falls under the same type of feeling where when I'm playing this game, there are so many things to think about. There's so many, I don't want to say fiddly pieces, but I'm going to say fiddly pieces. There's just a (laughs) lot of little bits, a lot of tiles that are like half inch squares that have a lot of information on them. Same thing with Castle of Burgundy. It's not that they're fiddly bits. It's that they're small bits with information on them that you have to be able to kind of decipher the information. That's what really gets you about these games. Yes. So, in back to Bob's question, I would say Stefan Feld does fall into this category of iconic designer. Because when you're playing his game, at least many of his like standout games, you know you're playing a Stefan Feld game. Carpe Diem is the most recent one that uh, people have been really talking about. And there's a couple others on here. The Revolution of 1828, which looks like it's releasing this year if it hasn't already released. And then Streffen Manager, which is slated for release next year, I guess. Um, But yeah, so he does have this iconic nature to him. Now that doesn't I don't again, I don't know that's a good or bad thing because when you're playing one of his games, you know you're playing it and it it feels like kind of like Ryan Lockett where he's just building on the stuff that he's learned before. Uh, there's another so what what I'm basically thinking of as as I think of this question is games like um code names. Code names the designer of that is uh and I I murder, murder this name every time is Vlada Shavadal. I believe that's how you say it. Now, he is another designer that is known for all kinds of things. Um, so, Through the Ages, A Story of Civilization, one of the top-rated games. I think it's number two or three on BGG. Galaxy Trucker, which is just a fun little... Um, it it's kind of starts out as a real-time game and then ends as a turn-based game. Uh, Dungeon Lords, which is super puzzly. And you spend the first half of the game building up your your dungeon and the second half of the game well i guess there's three phases first phase is building up second phase is like defending your dungeon from heroes but they're almost like two different games back to back so much so that the game instructions teach you the second half of the game before you can play the first half um and then so you have those and then you have code names which is one of the simplest games out there 
one of like and I also believe he did um Mage Knight, although he hasn't listed it under notable games, so maybe I'm wrong on that, but I don't think so. I think that was him. Um yeah, Mage Knight the board game. So he can he goes all over the place. And for him, I don't know that just by playing the game, you would say, Oh, this is a Vlada Shavadal game. But you might go the other way around. I respect his games, and therefore, if he if he made something, I'm willing to check it out. Even though I'm not into code names because it's a party game and I'm not really into party games, I really liked what he did with Dungeon Lords. Those two games couldn't be similar in any way, shape, or form, but they're designed by the same person. And that's kind of cool to me. Like as a designer, I'm really impressed with what he was able to do. All right, your turn. Name another designer. I'm leaving you the easy ones. Um, so do we want to talk? We can talk Matt Leacock, but also bring in um, Rob Davios here. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so Matt Leacock is the designer of Pandemic, yep. which is, I would say, a huge game for the industry. I think that one was one I heard about all the time for a while there. It was like top of a lot of lists. Everyone loved it. There's a million versions of it, Monopoly style. But well, I don't know any other games that he's designed. Yep. So basically, Matt Leacock is known for the Pandemic series, but we're going to look him up real quick because um, that's what we're doing now. So his <laughs> 2008 Pandemic. My internet two- ban has been lifted for this episode <laughs> only. <laughs> Just for this episode. The internet is our third person on this episode. <laughs> um, so Pandemic, Roll Through the Ages, the Bronze Age. Uh, Roll Through the Ages, I really like, actually. Uh, Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert. So, Pandemic, Forbidden Island, and Forbiz- De- Forbidden Desert are all co-op, or, yeah, co-op games. So, he's best known, basically, for co-op. But the thing with Matt Leacock is he didn't invent the co-op genre, but he did mainstream it. Until Pandemic, the idea of a cooperative board game was absurd. Like, why would you play a board game and, like, not be competing with each other? With Pandemic, it made it mainstream. And within 10 years, so it's been a little over 10 years since Pandemic um, was released in 2008 or 2007, sometime around there. Uh, now it's almost like co-op versus competitive is almost 50-50 if I'm, if I'm looking at like Kickstarter and using that as an example. Or at the very least, you have a solo slash co-op mode in a lot of these games. So he really like set a genre that is... You just really can't take it away from them. Yeah. But now we can mix in Rob Davio, because when you mix those two together... You get Pandemic Legacy. Yes. now Which is one of the most fun gaming experiences I have had with a board game. I still put that in my top five moments of gaming is anything we did in Pandemic Legacy. And speaking of that, I uh, will talk about our moments, memorable, memorable moments contest at the end of the episode. So stay tuned. <laughs> um, but Rob Davio started out, he, well, he's been working in games forever. He worked for Hasbro. And one of the things he was tasked to do was basically take risk and make it into something more. And he developed Risk Legacy which was the first of the quote-unquote legacy line of games, where playing the game, you were editing the rules, editing the board, you were making permanent changes to the game as you played it. And Risk Legacy was the first one. I believe Pandemic Legacy was his second, not with Hasbro, obviously. And then the third one was Seafall, which wasn't Seafall Legacy, but Seafall was a legacy game. Now, Risk Legacy, 
when I first saw it, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And it was a concept that most people are like, I, I don't want to like permanent marker on my board. What, what are you talking about here? Um, hidden envelopes and boxes to open up like this. This is weird. With Pandemic Legacy, though, everything just lined up. It made perfect sense. It told a story. It was fun. It was exciting. Every time you got to tear something in half, every time you added a sticker, it was so it was it was the cliffhanger for the next episode of I want to play the next chapter of this game. Yep. And it was it was fantastic. Now Seafall was horrible. But <laughs> <laughs> that was Sorry, Tim. Yep, yep. But well, but thank you for playing it. <laughs> and he liked it, but he played it solo against himself. So I think that might be the key. The problem with Seafall was it was a competitive game. So if you played it, like you weren't sharing the story with someone else. You were competing. So, which is weird because in Betrayal Legacy, which we're having a lot of fun with, you are technically competing sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the magic of the game is you get to experience these stories and be part of them. And sometimes you're the good guy. Sometimes you're the bad guy. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes everyone loses. Sometimes, you know, you get to be the best because you lost last. (laughs) (laughs) You lost the least, yeah. (laughs) And it's it's so fun to take on all these different kind of roles. And that's always been the fun part of... The whole betrayal series. The, you know, this is not the only betrayal game. There's betrayal at House on the Hill, whatever the first one yep. is, and then betrayal in Baldur's Gate. Yeah, and I was just talking to um, a couple people today about betrayal Baldur's Gate, and I was telling them how much we're enjoying betrayal Legacy, and they were like, "Oh, great! Now we have to go out and spend more money." <laughs> but but. It- and- It is so fun to open these things, to punch out new tiles, and we never look at the tiles when we're adding them to our pile, so you get to, like, flip up new discovered rooms in the middle of a game and be like, (gasps) like, today I wrecked our whole scenario by discovering Mm. this tile. And it's a really fun mechanic, and it, it works so well sometimes, but sometimes it is just like, we're playing Pandemic Legacy Season 2, and... You know, we've made these decisions early in the game that we're like, well, now this is ruined. We're never going to come back from this. We've lost everything. (laughs) But there are usually good catch-up mechanics. If you haven't done this, open that. If you're losing too many in a row, you get more resources. And it it does work out. Yeah. Well, and fun fact about that, Rob Davio was actually one of the initial developers on Betrayal on House of the Hill. And another designer that we should mention, uh, Mike Selinker, was also a designer on Betrayal on House of the Hill. I don't think they actually worked at the same time, but when it circled around and the current Avalon Hills, which is also owned by Wizard of the Coast, which is owned by Hasbro, um, decided they wanted to do a Betrayal Legacy... Matt Lee, not Matt Leacock, um, Rob Davio is like, this is the game that I've always wanted to do. Like, this is what I wanted Betrayal to be. And so it was like more of a project of passion more than anything else. And it really shows. 
So, and I want to bring up Mike Selinger because he has been in the industry for a really long time. He does a lot of big card games. He did Pathfinder, the adventure card game. Um, he's done a few other card games. He has his own uh, printing or publishing. I, I don't think it's a publishing label. It's a designer shop label. Um, I want to say Loan Shark designs or games or something like that. Um, but if you know him, he's been in like kind of the role-playing sphere and card and board game sphere a little bit. But speaking of card and board games, I think one designer that is definitely a name in the industry and fits on both the side of you would know his games and also people like take his stuff and he's has this breadth of types of games is Richard Garfield, yeah. creator of Magic the Gathering creator of the collectible card game format. And most recently, well, not most recently, actually, also creator of Keyforge. But he also has done games like Bunny Kingdom. Richard Garfield is another person who has just dozens and dozens of game credits. And I'm I'm going to, like, some of them that you would never even realize. Magic the Gathering is obviously the biggest. But let's find out his game credits here. So we have Mad- Magic the Gathering, Robo Rally, which is a fantastic um, programmable movement game where you're trying to get your robot around to different areas. Vampire the Eternal Struggle. I don't know that one that much. The Great Dalmudi, which is... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a party game based off of a less PC-named game. Netrunner. Um, many consider it one of the best asymmetrical dueling games where one person takes the role of a runner, the other person takes the role of a corporation, and they're tr- the runner's trying to like hack into the corporation's computers. Um, a few different Battletech, or well, the Battletech CCGs, a couple other CGGs. Um, let's see, Star Wars, the trading card game, King of Tokyo. Like, this is essentially Completely Yahtzee. Completely different, yeah. Ex- exactly. Um, but still a great game. Let's see. Uh, Bunny Kingdom, Keyforge, Artifact is a online game. So, like, this is just a handful of his successful stuff, and he has dozens and dozens of other designs that you would probably have not have heard of. But the fact that he Magic: The Gathering and Keyforge are two things that before he did it, I don't think thought I don't think anyone thought they were possible to do. Like Magic: The Gathering trading card game what What? why would anyone buy a card game that you just get random cards like why does this make any sense at all and keyforge wait a minute you're you're saying that now that you've you know had 25 years of developing this card game genre now you're not going to let people build decks and they're just going to buy a full deck that randomly generated everything unique that's crazy so what richard garfield has done is nothing short of like revolutionary in the board game and card game industry. More more so card game, although he's done some really cool board games as too. I mean King of Tokyo is one of the best selling games of all time. Um be- just because of its simplicity and the amount of depth that you can also add to that. I'm just really excited to be sitting here nice and toasty in my Keyforge Vault Tour sweatshirt. So Thanks, Richard Garfield. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for keeping me warm. <laughs> um all right. Who else do we want to talk about? Uh, looking through the list here. Jamie Stagmeyer. All right. And he falls under, this is why I put publisher on the top. Both Ryan Lockett and Jamie Stagmeyer are two people that are designers and publishers under their own title, or under their own label. And 
they've done multiple games of their own plus games of other people. So they're still a publisher, but you know, they they're like the primary designer as well. Jamie is best known for probably Viticulture and Scythe. Um let's see. And there's other games he's done. Uh the one I always Stone. For, the one before that. What do you do? What do you do before Viticulture? I think it starts with an E or something. Euphoria? Like, maybe. I mean, I'm looking at his credits here. Then that's the one <laughs> I'm thinking of. So for him, like if he puts out a game, I want to play that game regardless of what it is. And it didn't start out that way. It probably wasn't like Scythe was interesting. Um, it was on Kickstarter before I was watching Kickstarter. When it came out, it was pretty controversial because people were just like, you promised me this, this, and this at these times and whatever. And he took a lot of the criticism from the Kickstarter backers very personally. Like, he, I think he delivered early on that game, but yet people were still complaining. It's like, oh, you sent me a dent box and now you need to replace this box and that kind of stuff. That Kickstarter campaign actually stopped him from using Kickstarter anymore. He's like, I'm just not going to do it because people are not nice on the internet. And it's like, I, I do this because I love it and I don't want to not love what I'm doing. So, but like when I first played Scythe, I'm like, wow, this game is pretty cool. It's outside of what I would normally play, but I thought this was neat. And then I played Viticulture even though I was putting that off forever because I'm like, Viticulture. Yeah, you would not wine. play Viticulture for a long time. I'm like, it's a game about making wine. Like, and it's like, but it's eh. a really fun game about making wine. And now it's one of my favorite games. Like, I, this is the Euro game I would teach non Euro gamers because it's just so thematic at the same time of making wine and sliding around little glass beads. I also think that he is good because it's not just that he designs games of his own that are good. He, you know, um, Stonemeyer games, the other games that they put out, I feel like he's a very, um, he chooses very thoughtfully and the same kind. He looks for designers who have put the same amount of thought into their games that he does. And, you know, with wingspan, they had this huge runaway hit that they obviously were not expecting winning the spiel des jars. Like, yeah, and you know, finding those other so, you know, Elizabeth Hargrave gets a shout out here cuz even though she has now one and a half games under her belt <laughs> yep. with a wingspan and um Tussie Mussy which is still in the process of being published through Kickstarter, but yeah, she you now knocked that out of the park and he really recognized that as a publisher. So, you know, he I'll give him credit for that too. <laughs> yep. I mean, if you look at his games from Stonemaier Games, you have Viticulture, um, Euphoria, Treasure Chest, Between Two Cities, Scythe, Charterstone, My Little Scythe, Between Two Castles, uh, Wingspan, Tapestry, and that I would say that let's see, Tapestry, Wingspan, My No Scythe. Uh, Euphoria and Viticulture are definitely Jamie's. I'm not not sure about Treasure Chest. Um, between two castles and um, the castles of between two cities, and I think is his. And then the castles of Mad King Ludwig is not, but he got together. Nope, I lied. Between two cities is not his. That is Ben Roset and Matthew O'Malley. Um, but he was the one that said, "Hey, let's put these two games together and let me publish this game." Now, he expected that game to do much better than it did. And honestly, if you haven't played Between Two Castles of Mad King Lugwood, you should. It's a it is, really fun one. 
It is very, very good. Um, why it wasn't as successful, I think it was just because Between Two Cities and Castles of Man, King Ludwig were they both had their fan base, and I don't know that there was a new fan base that was created by yeah. I think you got a union of those fans as opposed to a broad. You only got the middle of the Venn diagram, not yep. a new circle, I guess. Yep. And, and Charterstone <laughs> was probably his biggest I don't want to say flop, but his least successful game. Um, that one is a legacy worker placement game, which I found to be very, very fun. You like binged that game. You and Sydney played through that entire game, just the two of you, in like four days. I think so. Yeah, we played 12 games and it was like so many stickers and so many things that opening boxes and new rules being introduced. And I really, really liked it. And when you were done, you had your own unique worker placement game that you could play. Um, Sydney didn't like it as much because I don't think she's as into worker placement games in general. But like the core mechanics are relatively simple as well. And it... I think once you play 12 games in a row, you kind of get burnt out on it a little bit too. But I, yeah, I maybe now is time because it's been a while. Yeah. I mean, I got my money's worth. I really like that game. Um, <laughs> it does play one to six, one if you play with Automa players. Um, and even at two and three, you should play with like some botted other players. I think a full six player game, you'd get the full experience out of it because then the board is being manipulated in all kinds of different ways. But that's just a hard hard ask. Um, My Little Scythe was not developed by him. It was it was developed by him, but it wasn't designed by him. Um, it was a love project of a father-daughter combo based on My Little, or based on Scythe. And then Jamie saw this and said, I'm gonna, I want to publish this. And My Little Scythe, I love this game. Love this game. It is a 45-minute, just adorable, super fast Scythe-ish game. And I can't wait until my kids are old enough where I can actually play this with them. And like, there's just, it's, it's a great game. Anyway, we talked too much about <laughs> Stonemaier games. What I'm saying really is Jamie is someone and Stonemaier games specifically. If I see a game that's going to be released from them, I want it. And I will be pre-ordering Tapestry, I believe on Wednesday, I think the 4th is when you can pre-order Tapestry. There's only going to be a couple day, um, window open there so get it now the september 4th through the 7th is when you can pre-order this so this one yeah i'm in line for this one all right should we talk about eric lang he's on the list (laughs) do can you name an eric lang game rising sun correct yes nailed it (laughs) (laughs) um probably not his go ahead he does a lot of the Simon games. Yes. Correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. I got so, this. <laughs> yep. He is another one who's been in the industry for a very long time. He does a lot of Amerithrash games. He likes rolling. He like he likes dice. And he likes, you know, seeing dice have like the outcome be determined by dice. But he's also able to do a lot of other things. And I will say that many, many, many of his games I really like, and many of his games I really don't like. So, but I still think he's iconic because of the number of things he's done. He was one of the uh, designers of Dice Masters. He did the Star Wars um, living card game, which most people did not like. Sydney and I love this game. It's like there are certain 
there's a couple aspects I don't like about it, but like the the deck construction is awesome. It's light side versus dark side. You have a deck from each side. You don't build a deck of 50 cards. You build a deck of 10 pods, and each pod has five cards in it. So it simplifies deck construction in a little ways, and like it's oh, it's just so good. Um, he did Arcadia Quest, one of my favorite games. Uh, Blood That's, Rage, which is yeah. like one of the most popular games. But he's also done games like Bloodborne, the card game, which I found to be really, really bad. Just overly simplistic, uninteresting. Um, He did the others, which I never got a chance to play. Rising Sun, not dice deterministic. There's a lot of like mental thinkingness there. Uh, Apparently, he has credits for A Song of Ice and Fire, which is a tabletop miniatures game uh, by FFG as well. Uh, like th- honestly, his his titles just go on and on and on. And now he is like the developer dire- director of development for Simon. Um, so he's taking a bigger like eh, maybe a less of a role in game design and more in game development of other people's designs. But I think he deserves to be on this list as if you like Eric Lang games, you'll check out anything he's doing. But it doesn't mean that you're going to like everything he's doing because he does branch out and he does a lot of different things all right any other designers that you can think of off the top of your head wolfgang warsh i know you've been waiting (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know about wolfgang this one my jury is out so my you know kind of criteria here that i've been going off of is do i know the name of this designer because i don't do a lot of digging into games i don't do a lot of you know following designers so if i know a designer it means that they're getting talked about a lot yes i I will give you that and it's probably not a bad way it's kind of so you know they were kind of alluded to um movies early on in this question and i don't know most directors i don't know who direct because in america we don't pay attention to the directors of movies most of the time i know in other places the director is like the top billing oftentimes. You know, it's not, we we look at the actors where, you know, other countries will look at the director and that's a big difference. But for us, we don't really pay too close of attention. And I think for a lot of the games we play, we're not paying that close of attention to the designers. Like we don't typically know. And Wolfgang is one of those designers who is more than a year old, but his designs are a year old. And he just came onto the scene and dropped three games that everyone just went crazy over. And those three games are The Mind, Gonshan Clever, and The Quacks of Quenlinburg. The Mind is dead simple. Gonshan Clever is... Clever. Clever. <laughs> I think that's really what it is. Like, it's still very simple, but that design of the board, of how how you can score your dice, was... Very clever. We talked about print and plays last week, and Ganshan Clever could be a print and play in all conceivable ways. Um, the Quats of Quinglenburg, I have not played, but it does look like it's a little bit more in depth than the other two I just mentioned. But we'll see. We'll see if his games stand out as he makes more. Because right now he's doing an expansion for the mind, he's doing an expansion for Quacks, and I think. I don't think he's doing one. Oh, and then he did. Um, that's doubly clever. So, uh, Ganshan clever and 
Duplo Ganshan Clever. I don't know. Um, there's a there's a second version of Ganshan Clever as well. So that's doubly clever. And wavelength. Oh, and wavelength. You're right. Wavelength is just on just finished on Kickstarter. This is being published through Stronghold Games and is kind of a apples to apples slash cards against humanity matching game um, with a little bit more like there's more to it than that. But th- that's what it is. It's kind of yeah. A, like, it's more of a party game. game. It's but it, it does feel more like the mind where it's kind of like think what someone else is thinking kind of a yes game. Yeah. So it's worth keeping an eye on him. Uh, I, I don't know that he's revolutionized anything, but he is certainly... I, yeah, I don't know if he belongs on this list, but I needed to bring him up because I know his name. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. This might be like, you know, Richard Garfield developing Magic the Gathering. At that time, people were just like, wow, this game is is crazy. But is Richard Garfield one of the best designers of all time? I don't know. Um, I still don't know. But he's definitely gone on to make a lot of very popular stuff as well as a lot of very unpopular stuff. So we'll see if everything Wolfgang touches is gold, which maybe what about publishers? Cause you have a couple publishers that you really like. We talked about the ones that are designer based. Are there any publishers in general where if they're putting out a game, you want to check it out? I always like to keep an eye. I think that, um, Osprey games, I've liked a lot of their stuff. They, um, kind of have a few different branches and I like kind of one of their branches of games. Um and then I also always check out what WizKids is doing. Yeah. I've yeah. liked a lot of their stuff. Um I think that they're just publishers that kind of gravitate towards the game design that I enjoy. Um not always, but like if I was at a convention, I'm like, oh those are the booths I definitely want to look and see what they're up to. Yeah. For me, it's Fantasy Flight. I, like, again, I couldn't tell you the names of the designers of my favorite games. Um, I could tell you my favorite games, though. So, and many of them come from Fantasy Flight. At this point, I would say half the games that I play on a regular basis are Fantasy Flight games. So they just have a great design team. And I feel bad for not paying closer attention to who the designers are. Um I know that the Arkham Horror lead designer, his name is Matt. I don't know his last name, but that's because they always referenced him on a podcast I listened to about Arkham Horror, the card game. Um, I know that Brad is the lead designer on Keyforge, or developer, actually. Developer, Richard Garfield's the designer, Brad's lead developer. And that's a, probably the, the extent of it. Just, and it, I feel bad, but, you know, if Fantasy Flight's doing something, though, I'm, I'm usually checking him out. Um, Simon. They've been hit or miss lately, but I still you like used seeing what to be doing. like. Oh, with Simon, I'm doing it, but now yeah. I feel like you're both older. You've grown yeah. grown apart. <laughs> well, I did just get the new Zombie Side Invasion, which is zombies Zombie Side in space, and that game I'm really liking. Again, I couldn't tell you who designed it though. I mean, I wish I, I feel bad about it, but it's like I I really like it. Um, which is kind of funny, because probably if you looked closer at the games that people, of who designed what, you'd be like, oh, there's some similar names between these games, especially if they're from the same publisher. Uh, let's see, what other publishers do I really kind of seek out? Gale Force 9 a little bit, because they do a lot of D&D and sci-fi themed stuff, but they're kind of hit or miss with me. Um, I think they can do good things. I think that they're they're kind of this middle between a miniature slash terrain company and a game company and it's 
I feel confused when I go to their booth shows. <laughs> like, what should I get here? Um, and I'm sure I'm missing some other stuff too, but those those are kind of the big ones when I'm I'm looking. And Wizards of the Coast. But Wizards of the Coast is mostly for their D&D stuff. I don't do magic anymore, but I do anything Wizards of the Coast is doing, I like to pay attention to because I like staying in touch with D&D. Yeah, I... Ugh. All right, I'm what about artists? I'm going to start now. Like, now that we've talked about this, this whole episode, like, I'm going to go downstairs and look at my collection and, like, see if there are any... Because, like, I know a few of my games. We've already talked about, you know, the designers on them. But, you know, now I'm curious. And every time I look at a new game from now on, it's going to be, like, something I pay attention to now. It's yeah. on my radar. Can't get yeah. off. And and the th- truth of it is, is designers work hard on these games. Like, the designer is the one that has the passion behind it. Now, the publishers are typically the ones that, like, say, yes, I see what you're doing here, and I want to use this, and I, I want to pu- publish your game and put money behind it. But those designers, it's just, it's it's one of those things where if you're a designer and someone comes up to you and is like, oh, I love your game of such and such. They love hearing that, as anyone would. Like, you're, I'm, you're appreciated. Now, the big-name designers, they get this all the time. But the smaller designers, like, they don't hear this as much because of this exact phenomenon of we don't really pay attention to who's designing games. So, yeah. Bob, thanks for this question because I, I really think that we should take a step back. And even if there aren't these visionary designers, and there, there are some, but I think that this is a, a good reason to look at the smaller designers as well and what who are these people that are making our some of our favorite games that aren't these big names but we enjoy what they're doing i would like to give a shout out to kenneth c shannon the third designer of two of my favorite games tournament at camelot and maiden's quest wow nice i picked up maiden's quest based on his name even though i didn't remember it but the guy at the Wiz Kids booth said, oh, "You like Tournament at Camelot? This is the same designer." So way to go, that guy at the Wiz Kids booth. <laughs> yep. And actually, I think that's a good way of marketing games as well, too. You know, from the designer of whatever comes a new game, just like they do in the movies. You know, from the and producers books. of so so so, from the author of la la la. Yeah. Yep. Like because that says, hey, you liked something from this person, you may like this as well. And cross-promoting designers is a really good way to elevate their names as well. And it doesn't have to be just big-name designers. All right, let's get into some feedback email, because we talked about print and plays last last week or the week before? I don't know, but we got a lot of feedback on print and plays. (laughs) We did. So why don't you start off on this first one? Because this one's easy. Oh, wait. I, this one is mine. I'm going to start I was going to say you labeled them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robert Doolin on Print and Plays. He says, I printed a game called Unbroken. Loved it. Late backer. Late backed it and have been waiting ages for it to arrive down under. So, I'm assuming Robert is in Australia. You may remember this Kickstarter and the issues around it. It seems I may never receive the game, so I may need to reprint the whole unupdated game. It is going to be a very expensive print and play. Um, so... I do remember this, and I actually backed this at the Name a Monster level, and I do have a copy of this game, but for those who uh, don't know the Unbroken Saga, they this is a solo, I think it's solo, solo only game, and you're, you basically 
your adventuring party died and you're unbroken. You're but you have to still get out and pass all the monsters. So that's really what this game is is based on. During the campaign, there was a print and play. So you could print it out, you could play it. And after the campaign, he added a bunch more stuff, um, added all the names, custom names, and all that kind of thing. And then went to print the game and realized that all the stuff that he added out added a significant amount to his estimated shipping cost. To the point where sending these games out ended up costing them money. So they lost money overall on the campaign. So much money that they went to the backers that they had sent games to and said, hey, we're losing money on every game we send out. And that's fine. It was our mistake. But if you can, if you can you know, contribute $10 back for shipping, this would help us be basically be able to break even and you know, make more games. Um, for the record, I did send them $10 because why not? You're a nice I want to see more of it. People, and one of the biggest things with Kickstarters is... Be careful what you're estimating on shipping, especially when you're adding new stuff, because a half an ounce can change the shipping cost by, you know, five, ten dollars. A significant amount of money. Yeah. So be careful there. But that's what Robert's asking or talking about there. So, Robert, I hope you get your game. And if you don't, I hope that it's worth printing out and playing again. Um, I will say that you have played this and I have not, which makes me feel a little bit guilty since you want to play this and I have it sitting literally on the shelf behind me right now. Um, So yeah. All right, Kitty, get me out of this one. All right. From Christopher Dong, I have found that the concept versus reality of print and play to be like a beautiful country view as seen through the portrait window. And when you go outside to enjoy the scenery, you smell the cows. Sometimes the beauty offsets the olfactory assault, but most of the time it's better to go back inside, close the door, and imagine how nice it is outside. So Christopher likes writing us very long emails, so I, I pulled two excerpts out of this. But I loved this part. This is a pretty decent analogy. It seems um, great in concept. <laughs> uh, he goes on. An issue with print and plays inherent to their place in game development life cycle. Their place for almost all games is somewhere before publication. Once the game is published and available, print and plays generally get taken down. Why have the game available for free after it has been published? This puts print and play games into two main characters. Yeah, two main groups going to be published and not signed by a publisher. And I don't know how true this is. Although a lot of our feedback was, yeah, I haven't played it. It's too much work. There's too much, you know, it's it's not worth it. But, and there's, there's always a but, but this game sounds good or that game is pretty good. Or I did do it with this one over here. So I think a lot of people have dabbled but short of our next um, feedback, most people are finding kind of what we agreed on, where it's it's a it's just a lot of work. There are Etsy shops out there that do this. By the way, my print and play of Tiny Forming Mars, I just got the shipping notice for it. Oh boy! Yeah, and if you paid attention in our last episode, you know that we recorded that one about three weeks ago. So I just now got (laughs) that printing update. Um, So it takes a long time to print and play or print a game. We'll see how long it takes me to play it. So Steve, we're going to end on a more positive print and play note from Steve. For me, part of the appeal of making print and plays is the work. 
Just like how in Magic, part of the fun is building your deck before the game, or with Warhammer, building and painting your army is part of the enjoyment, building the game is an enjoyable part of the hobby for when you cannot actually play the game for one reason or another. Um, Steve actually sent us a pretty long email as well, and I'm going to summarize this because I think these are pretty good points. He listed several reasons why you would want to do a print and play. Um, The first one makes a whole lot of sense, out of print games. Typically, if a game is out of print, you can still find the rules. So making your own version of the game is a good way of saying, okay, I know this game is out of print, but it's really good. I really enjoy it. So I'm going to put some time and crafting effort into this. So now I have a copy of this game that I can play. The next one is to retheme a game. So he said he heard of someone retheming Secret Hitler into Secret Voldemort. And this one this one hits home a little bit because Sydney uh, is Jewish and... Although she's not like, you know, I don't want to do anything with Hitler or blah, blah, blah. Like, she's not excessively um, anti. She's not overly sensitive, but she is still not happy. Yes. She is anti Hitler, by the way. Not, she's definitely, (laughs) (laughs) she's not overly sensitive, but she also doesn't want to play a game that puts her in the role of taking on a Hitler character. Yeah. So I like this idea of, Putting and like, she loves Voldemort. Harry Potter exactly. So like, yeah. this makes a whole lot of sense. In fact, when the game was in Kickstarter, they actually had uh, Trump stickers that you could get with your game, and you could put Trump as so you were a secret Trump. Um, which at the time he wasn't president, so take it as you will. I I I just mentioned that because it was a thing. Um, the next reason he says that you might want to do this is making epic sized versions of a game. So he's talking like, you know, scaling up 18xx games um, or, you know, basically there's 150%. So make it a little bigger. But you could do giant versions of games as well. You know, you have to see these giant King of Tokyo games and stuff. It's a print and play. It's usually done by the publisher. But um, you could do those kinds of things and you can kind of just get as creative with it as you want. I also remember, I think it was Christy talking about making a travel size version of a game. So she made a tiny Santorini with magnets. Yep. So those, that's another reason why, and we're actually talking, you know, this is beyond print and play. This is like crafting, like game crafting. Yeah. Um, Which it's still, it's the same thing. Cause when you're print and play, you're still doing that crafting and they're just giving you the files. So I think this is interesting. Um, And the last one he mentioned was uh, modifying the rules in some way. So he mentioned a game that used D8s, and he wanted them to use D10s, but all of the material mentioned D8s. So he redid the statistics for D10s instead, because he likes the way D10s roll better. And that's, you know, just kind of remade the game to what he wanted to play and how he wanted to play it uh, to make it more enjoyable. Um, and then he also mentioned that we we mentioned the Game Crafter, because I use that a lot for components and stuff. He also mentioned uh, a site called Print and Play Games that does this as well and has people who like if they have print and play games they sometimes will post it post them up here as well um there's also i want to say game maker um which will do similar things as well so there's there are places that will help you the biggest can uh, the biggest concern they're going to have is that you don't use art that is not your own so many of these sites may not let you use print and play files to print through them without approval from the original artist. So, you know, email the designer if you're interested in doing that and make sure you get written approval so that these sites would actually make that for you. Um, 
Finally, he mentioned that someone had asked us for a co-op miniatures game, and he wanted to throw out Frostgrave is a traditional miniatures game in that you custom build your armies, picking upgrades and building terrain, but there are a couple of co-op campaigns you can play, such as the Thaw of the Lich Lord, that isn't a board game with miniatures, but an actual miniatures game with co-op rules in case that is what you're looking for. So that was Frostgrave. Um, I think our game store was wanting to start up a Frostgrave night. So, um, And then, Steve, we got your picture. I don't know why you left Fiji. But <laughs> We're jealous. <laughs> yeah. Steve sent us a picture of where you usually listen to our podcast, which is on a beach of Fiji. And yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. That is our episode for this week. We have a contest. Kitty, why don't you tell us about the contest? All right. We are looking for your memorable gaming moments. So send us an email with the subject line, memorable, yeah. Not that, not whatever I just said. We wanted <laughs> to say memorable moment. <laughs> and tell us about a memorable moment you had in gaming. Positive, negative, whatever it is. Those stories that stick out to you about games. And you can be entered to win a $100 gift card, either to Amazon or Cool Stuff Inc. Your choice. Let us know. 500 words or less. And we're going to pick some for a random drawing. Yep, and then we'll do another drawing for everyone who entered. So we'll pick two or three of our favorites. Each of us will pick some, um, and that will they will be entered in the $100 gift card drawing. And then everyone who entered and all our Patreons will be entered in a separate drawing, which will be a $50 gift card drawing. So write us anything, a couple sentences for a memorable moment, um, and you'll be entered into the second drawing. Or the first one, if that couple sentences really, you know, have a very concise moment. Um, you have until... September 18th, and we will announce the winners on September 24th. Um, I think that is all we have to talk about. So I'm going to say that you can follow us on Facebook at Tabletop Game Talk Podcast, Twitter at Tabletop Game TLK, Kitty is Lawful Good Mom, Fletcher is Net Fletch. I am Game Master Chris. You can also leave us an iTunes review. It's been a while since we've gotten one of those, so, you know, we're lonely over there. And you can check out our Patreon page at TabletopGameTalk.com slash Patreon. Tabletop Game Talk is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Thanks for listening, and remember we love your feedback, so email us with comments or questions about today's topic at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. And finally, a huge thank you to our patrons. Which I will read all of them for revenge against myself. Adam Harrison, the SGC, Jason Strong, Terrence Milner, Stephen Seitz, Michael Old, Brian Arnold Stone, Pete Kelly, Steve Marie, Rudy Lou, Benjamin Heimowitz, Jerry Wong, Seven Phillips, Caleb O'Brien, Jennifer Engelbrecht, Justin Rudler, Christopher Dog, Jason Marks, Jeremy Fisher, David Radke, Dick Quickstrud, David Sellers, Jason Rodney, Michael Yanikowski, Miles Clark, Cindy Lum, Phil Schwartzel, Ann Reynolds, Eric Hoffman, Adrian Dong, Christopher Vincent, Nate Flass, Winston, Sean Peck, Eric Sealander, Mike Smith, Trevor Davis, Tim Vernick, Chris Lowe, Joe Hoover, Timothy Gross, Glenn Cotter, Jesse Wolkowiak, Emil Jewel Jackson, Marina Stevens, Brady Meltzner, Gregory Hubert, Don Gilstrap, <laughs> Stephen Judd, Leanne Verholst, Christopher Letko, John Will, blah, John Will, blah, try that again, John Lewis, <laughs> Joe Rackstad, Ron Nelson, Neil McLaughlin, and Sahara Wentworth. Until next week, keep playing games and having fun. You guys went to a wedding this weekend, didn't you? We did. We, after getting back from our nine-hour Minnesota drive, hopped in the car for a five-hour trip down to St. Louis. So, 
Yeah. And a, spent with a, a one and a half of, year old. Spent a total of um, 19 hours in the car with a one and a half year old in the last week. Did you use the iPad to babysit? Oh, yeah. 